Jesus, as we begin this holy week, we remember all the amazing things that you've done for us. And we pray that this week will be filled with little moments where we're reminded of you, even in the midst of working or going to school or um, doing our normal stuff around our, our places where we live. We pray that you just remind us, God, help us to be paying attention to the story of the last week of your life before you suffered and died and then came back to life and offered us all forgiveness and freedom and purpose through our faith in you. We're grateful for everything that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Welcome everybody, we're so glad to have you here at Mill City Church. We're in the middle of a series in the season of Lent leading up to Easter called Making Wrong Things Right, and each week we've been talking about different things that Jesus makes right by his death and then his resurrection through the cross. And today we're going to talk about how Jesus makes the wrong things right by establishing himself as the king of God's kingdom and establishing God's kingdom forever through the cross. So that's our topic for this morning. But I want to start by seeing how many fans of the show The Crown we have in the, in the audience. Enthusiastic crown watchers. Okay, I have to admit that I've, I've only seen, Chris, how many episodes have I seen of The Crown now? Like three? Three, okay. Uh, Chris has been watching it for a little while, and I'm trying to get on board. So if you love The Crown, come and tell me why it's such a great show for you later, okay? Uh, but as you get into this, so as I'm getting into this show, uh, I'm learning that the first, one of the first drama points is that the young queen is going to be going through the coronation process, right? So she, she's, she's elected the queen, or she becomes the queen through the family line. And then there's some really amazing things that happen, like here's some pictures of things that I haven't seen yet, but I understand are about to come into my viewing pleasure. Okay, so here's a picture of what I think is the coronation, and you get this image of now, this person, they don't totally lead anything, right? Am I, am I saying that right? They're, they're like symbolic leaders in England, right? They have no real official power. They have relational power. But just look at the pomp and circumstance of this coronation, right? See, this guy had to put that on. I think he wears that every day. And then all these people, had to, they have to know their place. They have to know what to say. They have to know who to invite. There's a whole bunch of political drama about who gets to sit where and all these other pieces. It's a big dramatic scene. She doesn't exactly look pumped, do you think? She looks somber. She looks like this is a, a big onerous job. My husband doesn't really want to do this in the first place. We have to live in this palace we hate. There's all these kinds of pieces to this moment for her. But anyway, everyone's all dressed up. And the whole nation is watching this moment. You get the sense of it? This is what the coronation is like. And then I think I have a picture of the crown. I, I don't think you wear it every day if you're the queen, but it's, it's this symbol of importance, of uh, power, of influence, of the sort of top of the social pyramid is the queen or the king. And we're celebrating Palm Sunday today which is a coronation of sorts. But what I want to do is draw a contrast between what you see in shows like The Crown or even in 
our own inauguration, when we have a new president, we have a great big thing where we bring them in and swear them in and thousands of people gather together. The contrast between that sort of coronation of bringing in a new leader or a new ruler and what Jesus goes through in the last week of his life could not be more different, right? Jesus doesn't get dressed up. There's not a whole bunch of pomp and circumstance surrounding his coronation, if you will. Instead, we're going to look at two scenes in particular this morning where Jesus establishes God's kingdom in a totally different way than is imaged by the crown or things like it that we experience now. Um, But before we look at those two stories, I want to start by saying, I think the problem that Jesus solves through his death and resurrection in terms of leadership is that through most of human history, we have been mostly terrible at finding good human leaders to lead us. If you look at the whole of human history, right, there's always good, good leaders, good presidents, good kings, good queens, good leaders interspersed. But on the whole, I had a friend in seminary who um, studied this out and said, even in the Bible, like the, lead, the biblical leaders, the people who were chosen to lead the people of God, like 30% of them finished their role well. And that might even be a little bit generous. So the number of humans who can step into leadership well and handle the power and the responsibility and all that well and finish it well has been very small over the course of human history. We, we have trouble finding human beings who can represent us well. I just bought this book for my kids that has a bunch of infographics about the different Bible stories. And one of them that Cole and I just looked at yesterday was of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah before they go into exile. And it was like kings, evil kings of Israel, 19. Good kings of Israel, zero. You know, and, and a seven-year-old can go, he, this is what Cole said verbatim. He goes, that doesn't seem good, Dad. <laughs> the infographic works. And, you know, Judah had 25% good kings, mostly evil kings. You know, most of this in the Bible comes from this moment where the Israelites are becoming a people in a new way. And they look around them at all the other nations and they find out everybody else has a king or a leader. And they say to God, why can't we have a king? We want a king too. And in the, in the conversation, God's offended. God sort of communicates back to them. You don't need a king. You know, I'm leading you. And they're like, yeah, yeah. I mean, we know, but we'd really like to have a regular guy like everybody else has. Could you just give us a regular guy? And God's like, you tell, trust me, you don't want a guy. The guy's going to be uh, authoritative. They're going to take things from you. They're going to treat you badly. They're, they're not going to treat you nearly as well as I treat you because nobody loves you like I do. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we hear you, but we really want a guy. Could you just give us a guy? And so God relents and says, all right, if that's what you want, I'll give you a king. And from that moment on, I'm convinced, if you look at history, you see us trying to find a righteous person, a righteous human, to lead us well. All the way down to the 21st century, we're still looking for a righteous person to lead us well. In just about any context you can think of, your workplace, a government space, social spaces, family spaces, we're looking for a righteous leader 
Ever since we first asked God for our own king, we've been looking for this righteous leader. And you just have to, at some point, go, maybe we're just either bad at picking leaders, or when people get into power, when people start to experience power, they just have the hardest time actually using the power for the good of most of the people. It's just too tempting or something, right? That, that you cannot do what you're supposed to do with the power and the authority you're supposed to give, and then all these weird things happen. And we have endless stories of government leaders, political leaders, because they're in the spotlight, of people who we have somehow said, well, maybe this person can represent us well or deliver us from this problem or work with other folks to solve the problems. And in the U.S., we're, we're gifted, right? We're blessed because we get to help choose those people. Not everybody in every country gets to choose who their leaders are. And even then, we find out we, we have these people on a pedestal and they end up doing all kinds of weird stuff and we're disappointed with them sort of over and over and over again. And for many of you in this church, I know, because I've heard lots of your stories, the same has been true for your experience of church, where we have these leaders that we, that we have, that we've, you know, put in power, put in, given authority in churches, pastors and other church leaders, who story after story I've heard from you, people said, wow, this, I looked up to this person, or I expected this of this person, and, and they let me down, or they did something horrible, or they were doing something behind our backs, or whatever the story is. And then after a while, don't you just get disillusioned by not being sure which, is there any of these leaders that are really going to be righteous leaders, people who are good and use whatever authority and influence they have well for the good of the people that they're leading. Now, don't hear me saying this morning that we shouldn't expect a lot from our leaders. I think we should. Don't, think, uh, don't hear me saying that I don't think we should have folks who are leading in all these spheres, political spheres, religious spheres, business spheres. We do. We need, we need leaders. But what we can't do as Christians is we can't give them ultimate authority in our lives. We can't let our view of these leaders and our relationship with these leaders become the thing that replaces seeing God as our primary leader and seeing Jesus as our primary king. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means as we go here. We desperately need, here's the problem I'm trying to describe. I think we desperately still need a righteous king, a righteous leader, someone who uses power the way the power is supposed to be used for the good of everyone. And that's still what we're looking for. And I want to suggest to you this morning that these stories about Jesus' coronation week suggest that he is the righteous king that we're still all looking for, that the world is looking for. So let's look at these just two key moments in Scripture this morning to see how Jesus uses power differently and how Jesus really becomes the king of what we like to call the upside-down kingdom. That the kingdom that Jesus is the king of works sort of the opposite of the world of the crown in, in a couple important ways. So in Mark chapter 14, I'm going to start there. I love this story because it is the definition of flipping everyone's expectations upside down. Jesus is eating with some folks and a woman comes and dumps all this crazy expensive perfume. As I researched this, it seems like this perfume likely cost about $10,000, maybe more than that that she just dumps on Jesus. So let's listen to this story as it's relayed to us in Mark chapter 14. It says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. So this is 
right towards the time when Jesus is going to be handed over to be killed. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Pause for a second. The king of this upside-down kingdom, first of all, is eating in the house of a person who had leprosy, which is a complete social no-no at the time. You're not supposed to go near anybody with a skin disease, let alone somebody who's had leprosy. And Jesus is eating in this man's home, okay? A woman came. Okay, pause again. Sorry, it's going to take me a while to get through this. A woman came is a radical statement right now. A woman came. A woman, a a person who had so little value in this society just because of her gender, that just her entering into this house while there was a meeting going on would have been flying in the face of everything that was expected of the gathering and of her as a person. And so the people who were gathered there were likely to look down on her for even thinking she could enter the house. How dare she? A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. I have a feeling that's a very kind way to describe what they did to this woman. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this woman, who in John we're told is Mary of the Mary and Martha story. This woman in the Mary and Martha story who is so audacious as to think that even though she was a woman, she could sit at Jesus' feet and, and act like a disciple. And we can talk about that story another time, but part of why Martha is so upset with Mary isn't just because she's not helping with the dishes, but because she thinks, her sister thinks she can be a disciple, and discipleship is really just for men. So this same woman, Mary, who is mad at Jesus for not raising her brother from the dead, or for not saving her brother before he died, Lazarus, has come to understand who Jesus is, breaks into this meeting of of the people gathered in a leper's home, takes a $10,000 jar of perfume and just shatters it like she couldn't care less what happens to all of it as long as it lands on Jesus. Douses him. Just try to imagine the smell of that experience for a second. Think of a $10,000 jar of perfume just being released over Jesus at the dinner table. And these young guys are just upset, right? They want to establish that they know that Jesus cares about the poor and we should have sold the money for the poor. And some of them just wanted to steal the money from the purse, probably. 
And Jesus says, don't say a word to her because she has done something for me to prepare me for my burial. She has anointed me for what I'm about to go through. And she has anointed me for the kingship of God's kingdom. They don't understand all that yet because they don't understand all the things that he's going to go through. But I can't, I can't emphasize enough how countercultural it is, how revolutionary it is that the king of this kingdom is not coronated by putting a huge crown, fancy crown on his head and having all these politically important people line up behind him. Instead, he has a woman who people wouldn't, would prefer doesn't even enter the room, come in with somehow having gotten a $10,000 jar of perfume and dousing him in it. As he eats at the house of a leper who people have ostracized. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. And his week leading up to his death, this is, a very, this is such an important moment that Jesus says in Scripture here, this moment of what she has done for me will be remembered wherever the good news is preached. That's how important it is. Jesus is the sort of king of an upside-down kingdom who is anointed not by a fancy ceremony, but by a woman with a really expensive jar of perfume, who has the audacity to think that Jesus is also inviting her to be his follower. Second story from Matthew chapter 21. So this is the moment when Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem in the last week of his life. And uh, as they approach Jerusalem, it says in the text, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, which they might, since it seems like you're stealing their animals, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, which as Asher said this morning means Save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus doesn't ride into the city on a giant horse with a huge army ready to overthrow the Roman government or the Jewish religious leaders. He embraces what the Old Testament says about God's king by getting on a donkey and riding through the mud into the city with very little to no political power and a whole bunch of religious leaders who are going to try to kill him. Does that sound like a modern day person taking power to you? 
Jesus so flips on our heads everything we expect from leadership, everything we expect from the person or people who are supposed to be leading us. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around how radical it is that the humility of the king to ride into the city on a donkey knowing that the people there are going to kill him. Jesus is questioned by Pilate about his kingdom. He says, are you really, you know, are you really a king when he's being tested before he's killed? And Jesus very clearly responds to him that his kingdom is not of this world. He's not trying to overthrow Rome and become a new emperor. And he's not trying to overthrow the high priest who leads the Jewish people. Instead, he's ushering in a totally different kind of kingdom. He's announcing a totally different kind of kingdom. And he's inviting all of us to enter into being citizens of this other kingdom by placing our faith in the guy who's anointed by a woman and transported by a donkey and ultimately coronated by death on a cross. Isn't that a stark picture between how we normally treat leaders who are going to be in power and how Jesus enters into this kingship in a new way? One more text I need to read you from Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author is explaining to us how it is that Jesus is crowned king and what's important about that. It says here in Hebrews 2, chapter, or verse 8, in putting everything underneath them, when God created the world, he gave us authority over creation. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, humans. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Not everything is under our authority. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, and here's the key part, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everybody. The way that Jesus becomes king, the way that he receives glory and honor, is through suffering. It's through embracing the people who nobody else embraces. It's through being anointed by people who, th who think this woman shouldn't even be in the meeting. He so flips our idea of leadership on its head, it's hard for us to understand. He is the king of an upside-down kingdom. He is, he is graced by God because he's been willing to taste death for all of us. So the king of the upside-down kingdom is anointed by a woman, transported by a donkey, and killed on a cross. That's his coronation week. This kingdom of God is founded on God's grace for us, forgiveness for us. And so it calls a different response for us. And I want to I finish by talking about what sort of response does God call out from us. The problem is we're terrible at picking leaders, and when our leaders have power, they abuse the power. And God begged us in the first place to not ask for another king, but we did it anyway. And we've been doing it ever since then. And then Jesus enters and says, here's what a king really looks like. Here's what a king in God's kingdom really looks like. The person who is fully human and fully God who gives themselves up for the sake of other people. And I'm inviting you by faith to respond to this. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus, the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, the kingdom 
The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. So repent and believe the good news. The time has come. The kingdom is breaking in in a different way. The kingdom of God is near to you. Now repent, turn towards me, turn away from the other things and believe, trust, put your faith in the reality that I am now the king of God's kingdom. Our response that God calls out of us is to receive Jesus as our king. And when we give Jesus authority to lead our lives, we choose to follow Jesus. So it's not enough to just say that Jesus saves us on the cross. It's also that Jesus saves us so that we can follow wherever Jesus leads us in our daily life. We have to stop trying to make anyone else king in our lives or queen. We have to stop expecting anyone else to be the king of our lives or of our communities. We see ourselves as people who have allegiance to only one king, Jesus Christ. And everything we do and everything we think has to be in line with what our king cares about, what the king says is most important, what the king showed us we are supposed to do with our lives. So this is what we've been struggling with with Mill City Church for a number of months. How do we continue to affirm our primary identity, the first way we think about ourselves as Christians, people who are following Jesus, and people who are following Jesus and then enter, enter political sphere and political influence and enter the business and enter neighborhoods and enter family systems. But if we don't start with our identity as primarily people who are following this king, then we're always starting in the wrong place. The question I think we need to ask if we're really going to treat Jesus as our king is simply, if Jesus is king, then fill in the blank. Okay, so I'm watching the TV yesterday, and, um, and, the, and the kids are with me, and we're watching the protests taking place all across the country. And you have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and a six-year-old, and you get to decide as a parent, are you going to expose your kids to this issue right now, or are you going to hide it from them? Are you going to try to explain it to them? What are you going to do? And here's, here's what I was thinking yesterday. I was trying to ask them what level of experience or what level of understanding they had about the risks for them in their own school. And they kind of get it, and they kind of don't. And then on the screen, there's thousands and thousands of people in these different cities who are protesting. And they're protesting because they, at least the way they were presenting it was, because we want a different set of laws to help control the use of guns, to try to prevent what has been happening in some of the schools, right? And then if you go from there, you start there, you're going to have all kinds of different opinions, different political parties who say, well, yep, we should take guns away from everybody, or we should protect the Second Amendment, or we should do something in the middle, or we should ban these sorts of guns, but not other guns, you know, on and on and on and on. None of that really makes sense to a nine-year-old, I found out. Okay? But what, I, what I'm using this for this morning is, what if as Christians, we're called to start in a different place? Okay? What if we're not supposed to start with the question, which set of laws is going to most reduce the threat of kids being shot at schools? 
That's not a bad question. But what if it's not the first question? What if as Christians we're trying to embrace our Christian identity and we say, well, okay, if Jesus is king, then what ought to be true about our schools? If Jesus is king, what ought to be true about the way citizens embrace their rights in a country that's supposed to be democratic and free? Okay? I'm not saying there's not going to be disagreements with that set of questions, but I don't hear that question being asked right now. It's almost as if as Christians we've, we've sort of given up on, on being able to say, well, because I'm a Christian, here's how I approach the conversation. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. You're not jamming religion down anybody's throat if you simply say, because I'm a Christian, here's how I think about this, this question, this particular issue. And where I start is by looking at the cross and saying, well, because of this is how the king was coronated, therefore, here's what I think about how we ought to live into this reality. Instead, for some reason, we're allowing ourselves to be defined primarily, our primary identity is by our political persuasion or by our familial relation or by some other identity. And Jesus didn't die so we could primarily be defined by our politics. Anybody? The question we need to ask is, if Jesus is king, then what does it mean for a group of people to follow Jesus into the 21st century on any, fill in the blank on any issue. I just picked that one because it's happening in some particular way this weekend. I wanted to end the sermon today by having a little bit of silence because we've been covering a lot of ground in the last couple months. And I want you to practice imagining yourself here as if you are in the presence of the king. Okay, the Bible paints this picture of Jesus being resurrected with scars in his hands and in his side and then being placed on a throne at the right hand of the Father praying for all of us. And I want to just take a moment to be silent and reflect on what would, what would it be like right now if you could see yourself standing in the presence of that king, the one who's anointed by a woman, brought into town by a donkey, and coronated by death on a cross. What would it be like to just sit there for a minute in the presence of that king? Let's give it some space in silence and just try to imagine ourselves in that place this morning. Jesus, we honor you as our king. 
And we ask your forgiveness for times where we have forgotten to treat you as our king. We pray you give us the courage and the awareness to realize when we're being defined in any other way, primarily, than people who are redeemed and restored by you. People who have been given the chance to be in real relationship with you because of what you've done for us on the cross. You are our leader. You're the leader of this church and every other church. And we look to you for guidance and care and forgiveness and courage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite the band to come back up. Let me invite the communion service to come forward. As a way to introduce communion today, I want to do a very brief summary of where we've been in talking about making wrong things right during Lent. So I have for you up on the screen here a summary of each of the topics that we've talked about on Sunday mornings. And remember, each Sunday what we've been trying to do is say, what's one way that Jesus makes wrong things right through his death on the cross and through his resurrection? And in the beginning we talked about how Jesus has restored us in relationship to God. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we can have a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing stands in the way of that. We learned that Jesus has given his life so that we can be forgiven for our sins. Jesus traded his life for our lives so that death doesn't have to be the end for any of us, that we can have life forever with God and have full forgiveness and healing for any wrong that's been done to us or wrong that we've done to anyone else. We learned that Jesus has showed us how to live self-sacrificially so that we can find meaning and purpose in the work that God's doing in the world by giving ourselves up for the sake of others the way Jesus did. We talked last week about how Jesus has defeated evil, that evil does not have power and authority over us as people who have been covered by Jesus and who have faith in Jesus, and we can have victory in our lives knowing that evil has no power over us. And today we've talked about how Jesus has established God's kingdom in a very upside down way and become forever king as the one who is righteous and can lead us. Now I want to suggest to you that all these things are the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of these things are accomplished by what Jesus does on the cross. And depending on where you're at in your life, depending on what your experiences have been like in church or not in church, you might find that one of these is particularly good news to you. And what we've been trying to do over the last number of weeks is say, when you come forward for communion, you're accepting all of these good news pieces. And maybe this morning you say, I need to reaffirm that Jesus is the leader of my life and has authority to direct my steps and my path and what I do with my life. Or maybe you need to say, I still need to um, affirm that Jesus has given me victory over evil or forgiven my sins or taught me how to live or reconnected me relationally to God. All of these things are the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you come forward for communion and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice, you are receiving that whole gift freely from God to you in faith. And so I have a prayer for us to pray before we come forward for communion that's particular to this week's topic. So I want to invite you to say this out loud with me before we come forward for communion. On three. We're not very good at this in Mill City, so the start will be rough, but, but we'll pick it up, okay? Okay, on three. One, two, three.
Jesus, I know I need a leader. I realize that every human leader will fall short. I give Jesus authority to lead my life. I want to follow you, Jesus, every day of my life. Jesus, as we come forward for communion, we know that you've done everything necessary, no matter what we've done wrong, no matter what wrong has been done to us, that you have authority over evil in every sense, God, that you are offering us reconciled relationship with you, that you will teach us day by day how to live our lives in a way that honors you and gives you glory, God, and brings glory to your name so that the church doesn't have a bad reputation, but a good reputation is being filled with people who give their lives for the sake of others because that's what you've done for them. That you are our king, God, that we have no allegiance to anyone else except to you because you have earned our trust, you have proven your love for us, and you have given your life that we might find a life that has meaning well beyond any individual one of us. We're so grateful for this gift and we come forward knowing that you have freely offered yourself to us for the forgiveness of our sins, for our freedom from evil, and for us to embrace the work that you've called us to do in this world that you care about. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Please come forward whenever you're ready and take the bread and the juice. Uh, we have extra stations today, so if you want, if the first one's busy, you can go to the second one, and then stop and pray with somebody on your way back to your seat if you feel like that's what you'd like to do. Jesus, one more time, we want to affirm that you are our king, that you are our leader, that you have the authority in every person's life to guide our steps and to show us how to live a life that brings you glory and honor, and we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what that looks like in everyday life this week. That it isn't just something we say on Sunday mornings, God, but a, a way of life for us. So help us to see those opportunities to love other people the way that you have loved us and to treat you as our king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.